Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 199. Today's big Bible question, how should Christians make decisions? Should Christians cast lots? Well, hello, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Today begins a multi-part series on decision-making, and I will lean on a couple of great books on that topic. One is Decision-Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen, and one is Kevin DeYoung's Just Do Something. Our Bible readings for the day are Joshua 20 and 21, Acts chapter 1, Jeremiah 10, and Matthew 24. Now, i got to tell you, Matthew 24-wise, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I am so tempted today to discuss the abomination that causes desolation, but I have to refrain. Since we have had two straight mystery-oriented episodes in a row, and I know some of you are, that's just not your jam. So I hope to revisit that topic when we get to the book of Daniel. Today we consider a topic that's a good bit more practical, I think, one that I don't believe is preached on nearly enough. How should Christians make decisions? Now, most Christians would say that, well, they should be led by the Spirit. And I heartily agree with that. But I would note a couple of things. Number one, I have observed that when many Christians speak of, quote, being led by the Spirit, what they mean practically often boils down to them saying, I'm actually going to be led by my feelings. In other words, I'm going to go the direction I feel like I should go. And I'm going to say that that's God leading me. Uh, I hope that's not too harsh of a criticism. Number two, many decisions by the mighty men of God in the Bible were not necessarily made by praying until they, quote, heard from the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad approach. I think you should pray about your decisions, absolutely. I'm just saying that the biblical paradigm for making godly decisions might be a little different than what you think it is. And in Acts 1, we do see a very significant decision made by the disciples, a decision that has been second-guessed by Christians for hundreds of years, even though the Bible does not itself call the decision into question. So let's go read Acts chapter 1 and then discuss the casting of lots. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived... They went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. 
They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of your number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field is called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of James, and in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position." Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with one with us of his resurrection. So they proposed too, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So, (laughs) did you see it there? The disciples cast lots to decide who would replace Judas. Now, I've literally heard people suggest that this was a terrible mistake, and that if they had only listened to the Lord, then they would have made the right decision, which was, in their eyes... They to choose Paul as the twelfth disciple. Now, I guess they would have had to wait a little while for that. They would have had to wait for Paul to get saved, of course, which hadn't happened yet. They would have to wait for him to stop persecuting the church, which, you know, hadn't happened yet. Uh, And he hadn't even started persecuting the church yet because the church hadn't been born yet. And uh, some of this stuff was going to unfold over a year. So I don't know why you would think, well, Paul's the right choice. But hey, who am I to question? Was it a sin? that the apostles cast lots to choose the twelfth disciple. Well, one thing to keep in mind in answering that question is to know that, according to the Bible used by the disciples in Jesus, I'm not talking about the King James Version, I'm talking about the Old Testament, casting lots was a very biblical practice. For instance, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Fascinating. We also have just read, like a couple of days ago, in Joshua, the very land that the Israelite tribes inherited was distributed to them by Joshua casting lots. Now, of course, I should also note that the pagan soldiers cast lots to divide the clothing of Jesus, and the pagan sailors on Jonah's boat cast lots to determine which one of them was the one that should be thrown overboard to stop the storm. So, casting lots was practiced by more than just the Hebrews. Was it a sin? I don't think so. At least, I don't see it condemned in Scripture anywhere. And there seems to be no indication whatsoever that the disciples erred in Acts chapter 1 in their decision. Now, a bigger question, well, I guess a more pertinent question for you and I, should we cast lots now to make decisions? Well, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to give you a I doubt it, or maybe an I don't know. But I'm going to tell you a story about casting lots. One time, Me and a couple of friends of mine, dear friends, both of whom were in ministry, this was in the 90s, the late 90s, we were driving from our home to a revival meeting 
that was about four and a half hours to the south of us. Um, and, uh, we had been invited to come to that meeting and one of the leaders was going to pray with us and, uh, some really cool things were going to happen. And we were just totally pumped about it and looking forward to it. And lo and behold, one of my friends on that trip got a call from his sister that his mother had just been admitted to the hospital and she was at death's door. She was about to die. And uh, my friend needed to get there immediately, uh, even though we were headed to Florida and this would have been uh, like a three or four hour detour. Well, we were stunned. What should we do? Well, I, I assumed that my friend would just immediately head towards uh, his hometown to be with his mother because she was in dire straits in the hospital. Well, he wasn't sure that was the right decision to make at the time. So we drove on in silence as he prayed about it and considered it. And I had the very strange idea that I don't recommend anybody doing. I had the very strange idea to cast lots. Now, i got to tell you, I have no idea how to cast lots. I don't know that any of us knows exactly how they did it. I'm going to tell you how I did it. It's a very American version, not biblical in the least. So just, just letting you know, this is not a practice I recommend. I scooped up a handful of change from my cup holder. Now, I have forgotten the exact amount, but I know it was either seven pennies or nine pennies. Let's just assume it was seven, although it could have been nine. Well, I prayed because I was thinking about Acts chapter one. I prayed, Lord, show us if we should turn back. If we're supposed to keep going, let every one of these pennies turn up heads when I cast them down. Again, this is not a biblical practice. I'm just telling you a story. So I prayed and I was driving, not recommended to cast lots while you're driving. This was like uh, 20 years ago. Um, actually, it was just like 22 years ago. Um, so I threw those coins down into the floor and kept driving and kept praying. And as the minutes passed, I kind of looked down at the coins where they were still praying. And one by one, I found all of them at my feet. And all seven of those coins were heads, which the odds of that are pretty strong. Pretty strong, but not astronomical. I think it's like a one in 128 for seven heads in a row. I mean, that's not a very high chance, is it, right? That's that's not a high chance. So I was like, look, guys, uh, I'll tell you something interesting. And I told you the same story. I just, I told them the same story I just told you. And that the odds of that happening just without God's intervention was one in 128. Well, I think my friend had already arrived at the conclusion that he was supposed to keep going. So whether the casting of the pennies had anything to do with that or not, I have no idea, but we kept going. Uh, and his sister got really upset with him. But while we were there, my friend got some people to pray for his mom. And while they were praying, he saw a vision of her healed. Make of that what you will. But as soon as the revival time was over, we headed home and he headed to his hometown where he was able to see with his mother and visit with her. And she was healed and she got up out of the hospital bed and went home and uh, lived for many years after that. So again, make of that what you will. I don't suggest that the best way of making decisions is throwing pennies down in the floorboard while you're driving. That sounds dangerous and not particularly biblical to me, but I do point out that in the Bible, oftentimes they made decisions by casting lots. 
Now, for us as Christians, should we do that? Well, I can't tell you absolutely not, not ever, because it's not necessarily biblically condemned. But I can tell you, I think there might be a better way. And so I want to talk to you a little bit today, just as a way of introduction, we'll go deeper tomorrow, about wisdom decisions. So the following parable I want to read from you, read to you is from the book Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. Now that book is like five or seven hundred pages long. It's excellent. It's a fantastic discussion biblically of how to make decisions. You should read it if you got time. If you don't have time, Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something, very similar principles and it's a lot shorter. So you probably, I don't know what you're going to do, but Both of these books are excellent. I love this illustration by Gary Friesen. This is what he says. The First Supper. Adam was hungry. He had had a long, challenging day naming animals. His afternoon nap had been refreshing, and his post-siesta introduction to Eve was exhilarating, to say the least. But as the sun began to set on the first day, Adam discovered that he worked up an appetite. I think we should eat, he said to Eve. Let's call the evening meal supper. Oh, you're so decisive, Adam said. I mean, Eve said. I like that in a man. I guess all the excitement of being created has made me hungry too. As they discussed how they should proceed, they decided that Adam would gather fruit from the garden and Eve would prepare it for their meal. Adam set about his task and soon returned with a basket full of ripe fruit. He gave it to Eve and went to soak his feet in the soothing current of the Pishon River until supper was ready. He had been reviewing the animals' names for about five minutes when he heard his wife's troubled voice. Adam? Could you help me for a minute? Well, what seems to be the problem, dear? I'm not sure which of these lovely fruits I should prepare for supper. I've prayed for guidance from the Lord, but I'm not really sure what he wants me to do. I certainly don't want to miss his will on my very first decision. Would you go to the Lord and ask him what I should do about supper? Well, Adam's hunger was intensifying, but he understood Eve's dilemma, so he left her to go speak with the Lord. Shortly, he returned and appeared perplexed. Well, Eve said, he Didn't really answer your question, said Adam. What do you mean? Didn't he say anything? Not much. He just repeated what he said earlier today during the garden tour. From any of the, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. I assure you, Eve, I steered clear of the forbidden tree. I appreciate that, but that doesn't solve my problem, Eve said. What fruit should I prepare for tonight? From the rumbling in his stomach, Adam discovered that lions and tigers were not the only things that growl, so he said, I've never seen such crisp, juicy apples. I feel a sense of peace about them. Why don't you prepare them for supper? All right, Adam. I guess you've had more experience at making decisions than I have. I appreciate your leadership. I'll call you when supper's ready. Adam was only halfway back to the river when he heard Eve's call. He jogged back to the clearing where she was working, but his anticipation evaporated when he saw her face. More problems, he asked. Adam, I just can't decide how I should fix these apples. I could slice them, dice them, mash them, bake them in a pie, a cobbler, fritters, or dumplings. I really want to be your helper, but I also want to be certain of the Lord's will on this decision. Would you be a dear and go just one more time to the Lord with my problem? Adam was not keen on bothering the Lord again, but after Eve said some very nice things about him, he agreed to go. When he returned, he said, I got the same answer as before. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Adam and Eve were both silent for a moment. Then with a light in his eye, Adam said, You know, Eve, 
The Lord made that statement as though it fully answered my question. I'm sure he could have told us what to eat and how to eat it, but I think he's given us freedom to make those decisions. It was the same way with the animals today. He told me to name the animals, but he didn't whisper any names in my ear. Assigning those names was my responsibility. Eve was incredulous. Do you mean that we could have any of these fruits for supper? Eve said. Are you telling me that I can't miss God's will in this decision? The only way you could miss God's will in this decision is to pick some fruit from the forbidden tree. But none of these fruits are from that tree. Why, I suppose we are free to eat a little from each one of them. Adam snapped his fingers and exclaimed, Say, that's a great idea. Let's have fruit salad for supper. And so they did. Now, that little parable by Gary Friesen presents his understanding of the freedom that you and I have to make decisions in the will of God. That is, if God hasn't forbidden something or God hasn't told us directly and specifically to do something, we do have some liberty. Would it please God more for me to eat tonight at Carl's Jr. or Arby's, for instance? Well, I think the answer to that is we have freedom. Now, I'll probably choose Carl's Jr. because I have a good friend who is the franchise owner of a bunch of Carl's Jr., but you can't sin with that kind of decision because God has not said, thou shalt eat at Arby's or thou shalt not eat at Arby's. So I want to give you five principles for decision-making that I believe the Bible teaches and models, and we're going to unpack these a little bit more tomorrow. Number one, Where God commands, we must obey. We don't have a choice here. Should I marry an unbeliever? Well, the Bible leads us clearly to say no to that question. We are not to be unequally yoked together with those who don't follow the Lord. So principle number one, we obey God's commands. Principle number two, where there is no command, God gives us the freedom to choose and sovereignly orchestrates and leads our choices for our ultimate good his glory, and to accomplish his will. So, who should you marry? I'm already married, so I don't know that I can answer that question. Does God have the perfect person picked out for you? Or do you have to pray about it until you get a shiver in your liver or a word whispered in the night when you're half asleep? Asleep, Jessica, Janet, whatever. Is that how big decisions work? No, we have freedom And we trust that God orchestrates our decisions in his sovereignty. Now, the decision of who to marry is a big one, but God doesn't tell you to seek him until he whispers a name in your ear. He does tell you to not be unequally yoked. Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms 37, 23 says, A person's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in his way. Proverbs 16.9 says, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So you can be assured that even though you make plans, it is God who establishes your steps in those plans. Principle number three, where there is no command, we follow the example of Jesus and devote significant time to praying, trusting that God will divinely lead us and lead our decision. So Luke 6, verse 12 and 13 says, During those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them. In other words, Jesus had a big decision to make. How did he make that decision? Well, he spent significant time in prayer. Did God whisper the names 
of those disciples in his ear as he prayed? You know what? I'm not sure. But I do know that Jesus met this decision with significant prayer, and thus so should we. Principle number four. Where there is no command, God calls us to seek wise counsel, walk in wisdom, and make a decision. The Bible tells us that in uh, a numerous amount of counselors, there is victory and there is wisdom. So get good, godly, wise advice about your decisions. Don't make decisions in a vacuum, you know, and feel free to make a decision about where you're going to eat in a vacuum. You don't necessarily have to call your wise old granddad up and ask him that question. Finally, principle number five, when we have chosen what is biblical and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work out all the details together for good, because that's exactly what he says in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. So I'm going to give you those principles one more time, but if you want to read them yourself, just go to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Number one, where God commands, we must obey. Number two, where there is no command, God gives us the freedom to choose and sovereignly orchestrates and leads our choices for our ultimate good, his glory, and to establish his will. Principle number three, where there is no command, we follow the example of Jesus and devote significant time to prayer about the decision. Principle number four, where there is no command, God calls us to seek wise counsel from wise people. And finally, principle number five, when we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work all the details together for good. So ponder that. We'll talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. And let's go to Joshua chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, select your cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that a person who kills someone unintentionally or accidentally may flee there. These will be your refuge from the avenger of blood. When someone flees to one of these cities, stands at the entrance of the city gate, and states his case before the elders of that city, They are to bring him into the city and give him a place to live among them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not hand the one who committed manslaughter over to him, for he killed his neighbor accidentally and did not hate him beforehand. He is to stay in that city until he stands trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest serving at that time. Then the one who committed manslaughter may return home to his own city from which he fled. So they designated Kadesh in the hill country of Naphtali in Galilee, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Across the Jordan east of Jericho, they selected Bezer on the wilderness plateau from Reuben's tribe, Ramoth in Gilead from Gad's tribe, and Golan in Bashan from Manasseh's tribe. These are the cities appointed for all the Israelites and the aliens residing among them so that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there and not die at the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the assembly. The Levite family heads approached the priest Eleazar, Joshua son of Nun, and the family heads of the Israelite tribes. At Shiloh in the land of Canaan, they told them, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to live in with their pasture lands for our livestock. So the Israelites, by the Lord's command, gave the Levites these cities with their pasture lands from their inheritance. The lot came out for the Kohathite clans. The Levites, who were descendants of the priest Aaron, received 13 cities by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. 
The remaining descendants of Kohath received ten cities by lot from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Gershon's descendants received thirteen cities by lot from the clans of the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and half the tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. Merari's descendants received twelve cities for their clans from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulon. The Israelites gave these cities with their pasture lands around them to the Levites by lot, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. The Israelites gave these cities by name from the tribes of the descendants of Judah and Simeon to the descendants of Aaron from the Kohathite clans of the Levites, because they received the first lot. They gave them Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak, with its surrounding pasture lands in the hill country of Judah. But they gave the fields and settlements of the city to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, as his possession. They gave to the descendants of the priests of Aaron, Hebron, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter with its pasture lands, Libna with its pasture lands, Jatir with its pasture lands, Eshtimoah with its pasture lands, Holon with its pasture lands, Debir with its pasture lands, Ein with its pasture lands, Jutah with its pasture lands, and Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands. Nine cities from these two tribes. From the tribe of Benjamin they gave Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Anathoth with its pasture lands, and Almon with its pasture lands. Four cities, all thirteen cities with their pasture lands, were for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. The allotted cities to the remaining clans of Kohath's descendants, who were Levites, came from the tribe of Ephraim. The Israelites gave them Shechem, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter, with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim. Gezer with its pasture lands, Gibzalm with its pasture lands, and Beth Haran with its pasture lands. Four cities. From the tribe of Dan they gave uh, Eltaki with its pasture lands, Gibberthon with its pasture lands, Ijalon with its pasture lands, and Gath Ramon with its pasture lands. Four cities. From half the tribe of Manasseh they gave Tanakh with its pasture lands, and Gath Ramon with its pasture lands. Two cities. All ten cities with their pasture lands were for the clans of Kohath's other descendants. From half the tribe of Manasseh, they gave to the descendants of Gershon, who were one of the Levite clans, Golan, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter, with its pasture lands in Bashan, and Bishterah with its pasture lands, two cities. From the tribe of Issachar, they gave Kishion with its pasture lands, Dabaroth with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, and Enganim with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Asher, they gave Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helkath with its pasture lands, and Rehob with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Naphtali, they gave Kadesh in Galilee, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter with its pasture lands, Hamoth Dur with its pasture lands, and Kartan with its pasture lands, three cities. All thirteen cities with their pasture lands were for the Gershonites by their clans. From the tribe of Zebulon, they gave to the clans of the descendants of Merari, who were the remaining Levites, Jachneim with its pasture lands, Kartah with its pasture lands, Dimna with its pasture lands, and Nahalel with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Reuben they gave Bezer with its pasture lands, Jotzah with its pasture lands, Kedamoth with its pasture lands, and Mephath with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Gad they gave Ramoth and Gilead, the city of refuge for the one who commits manslaughter with its pasture lands, 
Mahanaim with its pasture lands, Heshbon with its pasture lands, and Jazer with its pasture lands, four cities in all. All twelve cities were allotted to the clans of Merari's descendants, the remaining Levite clans. Within the Israelite possession there were forty-eight cities in all with their pasture lands for the Levites. Each of these cities had its own surrounding pasture lands. This was true for all the cities. So the Lord so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. None of their enemies were able to stand against him, them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. Amen. Jeremiah 10, verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken to you, house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the way of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. Someone cuts down a tree from the forest. It is worked by the hands of a craftsman with a chisel. He decorates it with silver and gold. It's fastened with hammer and nails so it won't totter. Like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm and they cannot do any good. Lord, there is no one like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? It is what you deserve, for among all the wise people of the nations and among all their kingdoms there is no one like you. They are both stupid and foolish, instructed by worthless idols, made of wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphaz. The work of a craftsman and of a goldsmith's hands is clothed in blue and purple, all the work of skilled artisans. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and eternal king. The earth quakes at his wrath, and the nations cannot endure his fury. You are to say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He made the earth by his power, established the world by his wisdom, and spread out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens are in turmoil, and he causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is stupid and ignorant. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his carved image. For his cast images are a lie. There is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work to be mocked. At the time of their punishment, they will be destroyed. Jacob's portion is not like these because he is the one who formed all things. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of armies is his name. Gather up your belongings from the ground, you who live under siege. For this is what the Lord says. Look, I am flinging away the land's residents at this time and bringing them such distress that they will feel it. Woe to me because of my brokenness. I am severely wounded. I exclaimed, this is my intense suffering, but I must bear it. My tent is destroyed. All my tent cords are snapped. My sons have departed from me and are no more. I have no one to pitch my tent again or to hang up my curtains, for the shepherds are stupid. They don't seek the Lord, therefore they have not prospered, and their whole flock is scattered. Listen, a noise, it's coming, a great commotion from the land to the north. The cities of Judah will be made desolate, a jackal's den. I know, Lord, that a person's way of life is not his own. No one who walks determines his own steps. Discipline me, Lord, but with justice, not in your anger, or you will reduce me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that don't recognize you, and on the families that don't call on your name, for they have consumed Jacob. 
They have consumed him and finished him off and made his homeland desolate. Matthew chapter 24 verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be prosecuted, persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here is the Messiah or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note. I have told you in advance, so if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, When you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming." 
But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, My master is delayed, and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Well, friends, I hope and pray that the Word of God has edified you today and pointed you to Jesus. He is our only hope. He is our salvation. Blessed be his name. Godspeed to you.